I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. All right, uh, it wouldn't be a Liturgy Guys podcast without us diverting from our main <laughs> category. And, no, this is not diverting. talking about John Honey. Well, I know, it's not diverting, but it's... Uh, oh, it's very diverting. <laughs> it's divertido, as they say in Espanol. Guys, stop fighting. I can't handle it. I can't be the mediator anymore. <laughs> but here's why, right? So you can go through the liturgical law, so to speak, the general instruction of the Roman Missal, and tease out some theology. We are front-loading this thing with theology so that when we... Go to the liturgical laws, they will just be so obvious, right? Well said. Why is refraction right? Because that's the body of Christ being broken. Why does that piece of the host put in the chalice? Because that's the connecting of blood and body again. That's the resurrection. And then you eat the resurrected stuff. So, you know, this is not diversion. Although I know what you're saying, Jesse. We're not always linear. But that's because sometimes the power of ideas just demands a second essay, a second uh, episode from John Honey's book. What's it called, Chris? Ah, uh, yeah, it's called Divine Liturgy. Yes, insights into its mystery. We didn't give Chris enough time to prep for the episode, so we have to. John Honey, H A N I. Yeah. Okay, you ready, Chris? Uh, oh yeah, yes. <laughs> All Let's right. Do it. So you know, the last time we talked about John Honey, two weeks ago, we were talking about sacrifices from the Old Testament and how the high priest identifies with the victim, and the victim is offered into the spiritual realm, and the victim then gets eaten, and so the the, the divine life of the God comes back, uh, small g God in the in the pagan traditions and large g God in the, in the Christian tradition, and that's interesting. You know, inner workings of sacrifice. But in his next chapter, he talks about how this actually plays out liturgically. Again, the mass doesn't look like Calvary very much, at least in its external signs. And if you have to find them, they're they're kind of minimal, right? Oh, you break the host in half. That really doesn't look like. <laughs> body of Christ being beaten up by Roman soldiers and nailed uh, to a cross. But the point is, Christ can never be re-sacrificed. Christ can never be re-crucified. He can never be re-flagellated. Right? This is an inter- eternal act. So our challenge is not to do it again, not to sacrifice Christ again, but to enter into the eternal reality, which is the Paschal Mystery, and he makes a good distinction, Chris. Now, you know all about the Paschal Mystery. If I said, what's the Paschal Mystery? What would you say? Oh, I don't know. Something like the suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension by which Jesus passed from the fallen world of sin to the heavenly world of the Father, more or less. Eh, you sure wrong. Totally that? wrong. <laughs> you sure Fail. you were prepared to answer that question? <laughs> well, he says that's right. It's the action of the Son of, the, of God to save us, right? But we also say the sacred mysteries of the liturgy so we have the Paschal mystery, the word mysterion, actions that are the Son of God in you know in time, um, but also eternally. But then the sacred mysteries are the ritual action of applying it to us in a visible fashion. Mm. Right. So you have the real doing of Christ, and then the sacred mysteries are the mysteries of the liturgy. When we say celebrate these mysteries, that's the application of that reality uh, to us in yeah. time. Just to buoy that up, the word the catechism uses is the dispensation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Very good. We've got a whole, uh, you know, you ask for allowance, you, you dispense your $5 bills. Do, do your kids get allowances, Chris? It depends how many cows they no. milk. 
Depends on how many teeth they lose. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you're like, hey, we're feeding you. That's all you get. But, okay, so here's the thing. You got all this gauzy sacrifice theory. Important, but not very tangible. And then Jean, I'm like, good. I, can I call him Jean? Sure, I'll call him Jean. Sure. Jean says, the fact of this redemption needs to live in the church in a mystical and concrete way. So this is mystical, like mystical body, you know. It's real, but it's in the mode of sacrament. But also has to be concrete. How can we encounter this if it's not uh, concrete? And he said he makes this. He's kind of cranky sometimes. He says if it's just spiritual, if you just have an, you two really are alike. I would thank you, Chris. Stole the words <laughs> right out of my mouth. Chris. I was hey, like, back up. man, no wonder you like this guy so much. <laughs> Actually, he has very few cranky asides, but he he does kind of hit this like it's not quite a low blow, but if it's not mystical and concrete, and if it's only the simple movement of internal feelings, then it, he says it ruins the idea of sacrifice because it becomes it becomes sentimental. The only way you know mm -hmm. something real happens is if you have a feeling, and then you become occupied with your feelings to know your authentic experience rather than an encounterable, tangible, three-dimensional. But that doesn't right? happen these days, does it? Who thinks that? Uh, lots of people, right? <laughs> lots of people in the Catholic Church sure. and without, you know. It's yeah. one of the uh, interesting things about praise and worship music is, you know, it's coming out of a tradition that privileges feelings as authentic liturgical experience, which is why people like them, right? So anyways, that's a podcast for another day. But here's the big point. How do we get from the crucifixion to the mass? Jesse, Chris? Hmm. I mean, who, who started that? Just early Christians wrote it down? Well, no, you get there through sacramental mediation that were instituted by Christ. Okay, so that's the key thing, okay. right? Christ institutes the right okay. of his own body and blood at the Last Supper. And he perpetuates this very concretely. Right? He says certain things. He says, do this. And it's objective, the mysteries of salvation. His body is equated with bread. So that's the substitution. Remember in the Old Testament, the animal substituted for the, the priest or the grain offering. He says, this is my body. Okay. There were also wine offerings in the Old Testament. So here is the same uh, substitution. And so he does it. That's nice. How can we can keep doing it? He did it once. It should be done, right? Why would we keep doing it? How can we keep doing it? Well, we can keep doing it because it's uh, existing in the in eternity mm -hmm. now. And so we, we can sort of tap into that. Is that how? That's right. But I know it's just like I'm asking you to read my mind here. But well, I, he transmits the, to the apostles the power to do it, right? He says. That's what I was going to say. I just did. <laughs> when he says do this, he wouldn't tell them to do it if he didn't give them the capacity uh, sure. to do it, right? Do this, but it won't mean anything. Oh, that makes no sense. So uh, these are supernatural powers for the real accomplishment of the right. And, you know, I've heard from you, Chris, at least one of the Gospels uses, uh, do this in memory of me. Do you remember which Gospel says anamnesis of me? I think you taught me that. I think they all do. Oh, they do? I think that's the word in all of them. Yeah. Right. So this is what memory is in this deep sense. Anamnesis is the making real and accomplishing by the remembering. So Honey gives this good definition. The Mass is a sacred action that man accomplishes outwardly, but that Christ accomplishes inwardly. So you have interior invisible spiritual realities made known in exterior reality. So it has to be through the right. You say, why do we have these rules? Why do we have vestments? Why do we have people arguing over liturgical uh, rubrics? Because what you want to do is maximize the encounterability of, of this right. Exactly. And I suppose this is where, I mean, if he's doing comparative religious study, I mean, the, the, at least the entry point, I presume, I'm not a 
historian of religions is is studying these rituals that uh, you know men of all times, you know, maybe our own <laughs> notwithstanding, knew that this is the kind of the touch point between heaven and earth, and you you get the ritual wrong, and you mess up the relationship with the gods wrong. And, and every sort of religion, whether it's in Egypt or Greece or, you know, uh, right. Iran or whatever. And, you know, there's lots of uh, Greek examples. I know you know some of them, Chris. Um, but in, in the ancient Greek world, many times you would have this god who died and rose to life, and you wouldn't just say, oh, good for them. You would actually, the ritual of, the, of their liturgy was actually to reenact the death of the god and to rise again with the god. And you see this, you know, in certain aspects of Christianity um, today, like baptism, you know, when you go down into the font and rise up on the other side, that's a death and resurrection, but it's in the form of a rite. We're not going to stab you and then hope you come back to life, right? It has to be. It's not virtual in the sense that it's not real. But it's 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 in the form of a right. De and Dennis, the the one thing I wanted to say about the you know continual access or the repetition is we hear about in the temple there was limited access, not just the amount of times, but the amount of people in the holy of holies. And when Christ died, that temple veil was split into two, and so then we got unfettered access to holiness through Christ, and so. That, that is all-time permanent access, but then we also have a, a God who lives in perpetuity before and beyond. And so that's kind of where I think that limitless comes in. Right. And you know what's interesting is there's a kind of shocking phrase, and maybe you remember, Chris, I sent it to you when I first read it before I taught it, that he says the uh, Paschal Mystery as we know it, right, the life, death, resurrection in time of Christ is actually a very particular eruption into history of what was already real. Christ was sacrificed from the beginning, which meant, because God's outside of time, right? So for us, it's linear. We're waiting for Christ, and then salvific action, action happens. But to God, it's an eternal now. So we can participate in the sacrifice of Christ not because we're doing it again, and precisely it's impossible to do it again. Christ's not going to come as a slave and die on a cross again. But it's an internal reality that we have to now enter into, and the method by which we enter into that is the right we reenact his death. We remember his death. We carry candles around. Things you've been talking about, Chris. You know, the column of fire, the column of smoke, the uh, lighting of the new fire, all this stuff. Those are all ways that you can actually do what Christ did. In fact, in class, I had Michael Sheenyfeld, who's an awesome Benedictine student. <laughs> he was the last one in class, so I closed the door and talked to him in the hall. I'm like, just play along. Is it okay if we invent a right for you? So I locked the door, and then he banged on the door. And I said, who is it and what do you want? I want to come into the class, right? And I made him bang on the door three more times. And then when he got in, I grabbed him by the collar and I put him on the floor and put him face down and I stepped on him. And then as a group, we had to decide whether we allowed him to die and come back to life. And that was an experience he had in his body that other people witnessed that is different from just talking about it. I mean, it wasn't truly a mystery, right, of course, but it was something approaching or sacramentalizing the sacrament, right, a sign of the thing. We wanted him to experience what's it like. And, you know, I had a little pleasure. It's the only time I've ever had to have my foot on a student's back on the floor. And, of course, he's a super nice guy, so I would never uh, want to do that to him. Or so wild student body down there. <laughs> we'll wait till your uh, performance reviews come in to see if that's yeah, something well, you should know, keep doing. He had to beg, right, to come back to life, and I had that power over him. But the point is – we talked about rituals that like fraternities have. I remember hearing about some of these things. Or there's a tradition here at Benedictine that at a Benedictine wedding they have a bottle of 
I don't know if it's Southern Comfort or Jack Daniels or something, and they all, all the guys stand in a circle and sing, and they all pass the bottle over their shoulder, and when it's gone, then they're done, and that, this is their ritual. But see, it's participation in an act. So, you know, in the in the pagan world, you had this rite that was capable of renewing and making present again the deeds of the god, and the, the efficacy was made knowable through that doing. And that was a key thing in, in Judaism in some ways, but also into uh, the pagan world. So this is why you see all the mysteries, incomplete versions of mysteries get fulfilled uh, by Christ. You get relationship with the divinity by doing the things that the divinity uh, asks you to do. And he says it's always got a dramatic representation. And this is an interesting question for both of you or anybody out there listening. What's the difference between a passion play and the mass? In both cases, you have a guy taking the role of Jesus, doing stuff, you know, the presentation of the mysteries of his life, death, resurrection. The passion play is just a representation, whereas the mass is an actual, it's actually happening. Yeah, one's a remembering, right, in a kind of dramatic way, but one's an anem... As in do this in remembrance of me, right? Right, but it's not <laughs> anemnetic, right? It's not entering into the mystery, Um in the same kind of dramatic representation. And that's the key thing. Anamnesis is the making real by remembering, whereas the passion play is just an encounterable uh, remembering because the guy playing Jesus has not been instituted by Christ with the powers to anamnetically make real again. So Jim Jim Caviezel mm-hmm. in The Passion of the Christ, uh, it's, it's, it's an acting it out, but it's not He's not a, an anamnetic, sacramental representation of Jesus himself like Father yeah, Bill. At least not until he gets ordained, right? But even then, the passion play is not following the rite of, um, mm, of the Mass. Mm-hmm. So in ritual remembrance, it's very particular. It's instituted by Christ. And Christ, sure, he carried the cross and all the things of the stations, but that was not the institution of the memory of it. Uh, although it's incorporated, that was not the right that Christ gave us uh, to celebrate. Maybe again, another example, since you talked about stations, I mean, compare stations of the cross versus the reading of the passion on Good Friday. The one is a ritual, the reading of the passion is a ritual remembering that in some way actually makes present the passion of Jesus. Whereas the stations of the cross is a, not a liturgical act. Sure, it, it sort of reenacts it, and in a very, in some way, a very lesser way, you know, brings that to mind at least, but not in that same ritual. And when we participate way. in the stations of the cross, as devotional things often do, you know, they get us all stirred up. I like to say it's the uh, pep rally, and then the liturgy is the football game. You get all stirred up for the football game, mm-hmm. and the football game is the real thing. So, like, people watch films for against, you know, other teams before the game to learn how the other team, you know, has defense or whatever. That's a preparation, and you get ready and go do it. Because the divine deed of the liturgy, as he calls it, is this act that has the full power of ritual execution of the event and its consequences. So, the event and its consequences. Whereas... A passion play is is reminding you of the event, but is not actually making real the event or its consequences in the world. So that's how he distinguishes between an evocation and an efficacious uh, participation. Um, and so you get introduced into the event liturgically. He, he says it makes us contemporaries with Christ's uh, deed and person. That's an interesting thing, right? 
in the liturgy, you're actually entering into Christ's time and encounter Christ's person. Unlike a guy playing Jesus in a play, you have contact with a guy playing uh, Jesus in a play. And so it's the liturgy that allows us to enter into the original mystery and not just to remember a um, historic event. The key thing here, and this is what I put on my uh, first exam, they have a suprahuman origin, which means what? The gestures of the right have a suprahuman origin. Divine? Yeah, above human, right? Supra is above human. And the spiritual enemies, and it, sorry, the spiritual energy is attached to it. It's given by Christ and makes uh, capable of uh, making real of this. The key thing, it has to be a qualified agent. Who's the qualified agent in the liturgy? Me? You pointed at me, Chris. <laughs> you don't know the answer. Just say <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. Right. Well, Jesus is the reality, but who's the agent of Jesus to make these mysteries real and present? The priest and us. Yeah, the priest, the bishop, the priest, right? So the, the agent is the ordained. And then they have the same authority that Christ had. The authority that created the right, which is Christ, now has the authority to uh, continue that right. And they get that power through uninterrupted transmission from bishop to bishop to bishop, you know, apostolic authority that goes from time to time. That's the, the gist of that response and with your mm -hmm. spirit. It came, comes from Moses, from God taking the spirit of Moses and placing it on these uh, 70 uh, elders. And remember that one was <laughs> started speaking as if he were Moses out uh, away from the camp. And I don't know, uh, Joshua gets jealous because he's speaking as if he were Moses. You're like, who do you think you are? You're speaking as if you're, you're Moses. Well, when we say, and with your spirit to a priest or a bishop, especially, uh, it's just as for that reason that you're saying is that they are authorized to to speak on his behalf and act yeah, on his exactly. behalf. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, agent. our modern day is all interested in power structures and all that stuff. Well, you're ordained and I'm not and clericalism versus laity. Well, yeah, you don't want to be clericalist and lord it over the people in the secular way. But the truth of the matter is an ordained person has capacities, has been chosen in a particular way to be and to signify that reality and to lead that visible symbolic activity and mm. without that you're not real. Dennis which uh, liturgical movement figure does that remind you of uh, the guy you like so much uh, liturgy oh, life of the that church sounds like Baudouin, about the, right? it does about the hierarchical character of mm -hmm. uh, the church that the sacerdotal power of Christ the priest doesn't exist here below except through a visible right. hierarchy and so there's a reality invisible instituted by Christ in heaven outside of time and we're breaking into that reality. And this is how we get, again, this notion. Sometimes you hear Protestant Catholic arguments about, well, how can you sacrifice Christ again? It can't be a sacrifice. It was done once, and it can't be done again. You want to crucify Jesus again. But we talked about this a little bit before, that the prototype of the Mass is not really the crucifixion, which is kind of funny. Or even the Last Supper, although it is. I mean, these things are all important contributors to our understanding of it. But he says the mass has its prototype in what? Can you guess? Well, Aiden Nichols would say in heaven, the heavenly, heavenly banquet. <laughs> Aiden Nichols is always right. I wonder if Aiden Nichols uh, ever listened to Liturgy Guys podcast. <laughs> listen to the podcast. Here, hereby invite <laughs> Aiden Nichols to uh, to write into us. Jesse, call him. <laughs> Liturgy Guys. Right, yeah, I'll get, a, I'll get on that. What about the resurrection? Well, that all of these realities are summed up in 
the sacrifice of the lamb described in the book of Revelation, right? the wedding feast of the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, who's slain but risen, who's standing uh, but slain. And so the heavenly perfection includes eternity. It includes Christ entering into time. It includes death, resurrection, uh, crucifixion. And we can ponder all of those, you know, one by one. And we do on Good Friday and Holy Thursday. But this is the thing that kind of blew my mind. And I, I conferred with a couple of theology professors here. And I guess it's a standard question in the theological world. Um, Book of Revelation 13, 8 says, The Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Isn't that crazy? The Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. And Paul writes in Colossians, The mystery of Christ has been hidden for generations. Well, how could the mystery of Christ be hidden for generations if it just happened, <laughs> you know, like within Paul's lifetime? So it's not repeating the act of Calvary because that's impossible. But what he says, it's the visible manifestation in our time. He calls it the here and now of this eternal act of the son to the father. You're looking thoughtful, Chris. So even, even 2000 years ago on Calvary, that was the visible manifestation and breaking into our world of what had been going on from the foundation. Yeah, what was already real. Right? And it's hard for us to think about it because we think linearly, right? Before, after, it was yesterday, it's tomorrow. Uh, outside of time, future, past, present. I mean, it had to happen. You would have to say Christ had to emerge into history. So you can't say it's optional, right, that it happened. Um, but in God's sense of time, um, that was the manifestation. He calls it the hick at nunc, right? The here and now of, for us of what was already uh, already true. Is this, is my crazy or is this like tapping into the metaphysics like we talked about one time? Well, of course, yeah. Anything about the physical realm would be into the metaphysical uh, realities. When um, we like the physical realities. Well, did this happen? What was the date? Who, you know, there's a real tangibility about the gospel. And Bishop Barron brings this up too, that they always say in the reign of this emperor, this local governor, this happened because they really want the historicity of Christ to be known as not a myth, but a real thing. But here's the actual phrase that that uh, kind of I had to think about for a while. The sacrifice of Calvary uh, as a historical fact is only a manifestation at an extraordinary degree on earth of the eternal sacrifice of the lamb immolated from the beginning, which is precisely the heavenly liturgy. I don't know if that makes you nervous. It made me nervous at first. How could we yeah, say it makes it? We well, think the, the other way around. The earthly yeah. event happened, so now it's in heaven. And then it then right. it got taken up. Oh my into goodness! The eternal that is. Uh, hmm. Well, I'm going to be parsing that out for a while now. Yeah. Wow. Th these, you know, you, when I say is that true? Like, is that? Yeah. I, well, I guess I guess it's our subjective opinion and our and our vantage, right? So, like, well, theologians wow. can oh my uh, disagree about <laughs> about this stuff, right? But Christ couldn't could Christ not be slain until? The earthly event, like you can't talk about God changing, right? So there had to be something in God already that had the capacity to redeem us in this particular way. And so there's subtle distinctions Thomas make about uh, physically slain versus conceptually and all that. And I'm not really prepared to talk about this stuff. But the idea is the mass is the eternal offering. It's a participation in the eternal offering of the Son to the Father, not just the post-resurrection offering of the Son to the Father, which is why mm. we can do it again and again. Mm. We want to enter into that process because it's an eternal reality that is not just time bound 
And so this is a really important distinction in the Protestant Catholic world that the crucifixion and the resurrection was not, didn't just bump the bouncer away from the door of heaven, but is a, a longer continuing mm. uh, reality. That's what it's Boy, that's, that's a thinker. I'm a, I like that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It certainly does expand uh, your myopia. How dare you talk about my myopia? <laughs> I haven't talked about that publicly. And there's nothing wrong with questions like matter and form. Is the Eucharist valid? Is it the real presence? Yeah. Okay, great. Very important questions. But it's much broader than that. Christ has to take all creation on himself. Why? Well, he has to take all of creation back to the Father, not just me, not just you. And um, he's the suffering uh, victim, but he's the perfect victim. We transfer onto him all of our sins. He takes care of them. He substitutes for us by us uniting to him. He takes us to the heavenly realm. He comes back from the heavenly realm with his transformed flesh, just like the Old Testament um, sacrifices um, foretold. He's the bread sacrifice because the showbread of the ancient temple. He's the bread of the Last Supper. It all comes together in Christ, and he produces in the world or you know, makes possible in the world all of creation being restored back to the heaven and the realm, and that's the goal, right? I guess, I guess it makes sense because the Trinity – didn't it didn't start like God the Father and then and then uh, then he created the Holy Spirit and then you know what I mean like that they were all in existence in eternity anyway and so oh man sorry I'm like on my mind that's <laughs> the idea yeah, I mean I promise you I'm not wow. getting kickbacks for this book it's only like fifteen bucks it's a little paperback wow maybe we just wrap it up with this you know bread and wine okay bread and wine prototype in the Old Testament. Bread and wine are, you know, foundational things. Wine kind of looks like blood and bread is necessary for the nourishing of our, our body. So there's a kind of natural correspondence here. But what has to happen to wheat for it to become bread? It needs it has to, be, to crushed be crushed and cooked. And cooked, right? And if it's leavened, there's something mysterious that happens that basically becomes pasty flour water, and then it becomes filled with air, like the pneuma of the Holy Spirit. The bread kind of has a, a resurrection, and the, the many grains are crushed into one loaf, right, one flour. So just like all of us lose our individual um, preoccupations in the mm -hmm. life of the church, so there's, there's bread. How about grapes? The same thing. You can probably figure that out. Cooked. They're crushed. crushed. <laughs> they should literally shed their purpley blood, uh, right? Well, not literally, but yeah, figuratively. It ferments. And then how does it become wine? There's this mysterious thing. Fermented? Yeah, this fermentation is like, this, it's just not, you know, grapes and then smushed grapes. <laughs> it's just like wheat is not wheat and then smushed wheat. It becomes bread. And then wine is something more than grapes. It's like a transformed or transfigured or resurrection-like uh, quality. And so you have this notion that the sober drunkenness we've talked about before or the wine that has the capacity to bring us sort of joyfulness that's an anticipation of heaven uh, is present there and brings a kind of euphoria, you know, of course, of course used uh, properly. And he finishes his chapter there by talking about the traditional symbol in hier hieroglyphs was an upside-down triangle that was a symbol of the heart. And then the upside-down triangle with a stem on it was a symbol of the chalice. 
right? So the heart is filled with blood and it's the thing that sends the life out to the rest of the body. Never knew and then that. the chalice becomes filled with blood and the purpose is to restore that divine life to the body and to bring us into the conformity uh, to Christ. And all the little moves, the materials, the chalice, the actions, the words, the priest and persona Christi, they're all making this, he calls it a mimo drama, M-I-M-O, meaning the same drama. It's the same drama as Christ, but now in the mode of sacrament. And uh, this is how we participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And that is what happens in the rites, in the order of mass, in the liturgy of the Eucharist, is the backstory to all of those rituals and rubrics and actions and words and music is what you And now described. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. Okay, I'm well. going to be thinking about the eternal nature of the sacrifice beyond linear time. Honey, why are you tossing and turning? Ah, <laughs> oh, I'm just thinking about the eternal. You guys, think I'm, you guys think I'm joking. I'm being very serious. I thought you said, honey, why are you tossing and turning? But you said, honey, honey, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so when we get back to the actual general instruction soon, bring all this with us, and then we'll try to see how purification, sacrifice, ritual, enter into it, and all that stuff, making it real and encounterable for us is important stuff, and not just legalism. So this wasn't a detour. It was like a pit stop to get some nourishment. Yeah, you know? we, we filled up the gas tank, and now we're going to do the Indianapolis <laughs> 500 of the, uh, of the, of the missile. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Dennis. Job, Dennis. Awesome. Yeah, come to Benedictine and, uh, and take my class. Amen. I, I might. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, liturgy question? Question mark? <laughs> yes. Mail call. Mail call. Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. You know what I say? It's a good thing that Michael is here to fix all of our problems. Thank you, <laughs> when we don't know the answer. Do we have a question, Jesse? The, uh, the uh, audio cos cosmetician? What do you, what do you call it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Makes, uh, sound, makes our talking sound good. <laughs> Jesse just wants to talk. Go ahead, Jesse. All right. This week we have a question from Adam. And Adam says, Hi, Adam. <laughs> sorry, I forgot that part. Sorry. <laughs> Chris, yeah, anything you want to say to Adam? Hi, Adam. All right. Adam says, The germ calls for two, four, six, or seven candles on the near altar. What constitutes, quote unquote, near if there are candles on an old high altar or altar of repose or whatever other setup there may be? Is it in the mind of the documents of the church that those candles be lit as well? Whatever is the main altar, sorry, as well as whatever is on the main altar during mass, or is that too many candles? I would also like to know, this is a question I want to know the answer to. How many candles is too many candles? Yeah. Well, I don't know that there's actually a, a number somewhere in canon law about this. I think near the altar to me would mean it's clearly reading that these candles are part of this ensemble, this altar, this celebration of the Eucharist this setting up of vessels or whatever you have on that altar. If it, they're on the other side of the room, if they're at the altar of reservation, then they look like they're some other place. If, to me, if, intuitively, if you can't tell if they've lit the candles to go with that altar, then it's probably not close enough. Now, the question about an altar of reservation versus altar of sacrifice gets a little thornier. You know, the church tends to prefer that 
an altar reservation clearly take a secondary place during the liturgies, right? Because the altar sacrifice is the primary action at that point. So I guess there's two ways to look at it. One is a strictly legalistic way that says, nope, only the altar of sacrifice may have candles. The other is, well, the glory of the altar of sacrifice is spilling out into the rest of the church, like on Easter Sunday mass or something. And maybe the festivity is so high that you just light all the candles on the wall, the consecration candles, everything else, just get all the candles lit up and say, this is the feast of feasts, Easter Sunday. So uh, what do you think, Chris? Hmm. Oh, yeah, I think I agree with you. So when, it, when the, the church, let's see, what is the number here? 307, it talks about candlesticks on the altar or around it. So I think that would be if you had candlesticks on top of the altar, or sometimes you have candlesticks that sit on the floor, but are around it. But then, yeah, these other places where you've got maybe, a you know, the old high altar where back where this tabernacle stand, something like that. I don't. I, I don't think the the rubrics or the germ is really speaking to that. Um, I think you can make a case for either. I I sort of agree with you, Dennis. I I don't think it's unreasonable to light the other candles around, say, the tabernacle or um, elsewhere in the sanctuary, apart from the from the principal altar. So from from what I've experienced, those candles are usually are skinnier or smaller. Mm-hmm. in nature and that the candles on the altar are, you know, thicker and look like they have more prominence. So yeah. maybe that's a way to do both and, and say that there is a, yeah. this is the principal focal point. I don't know. You know. On the other hand, on the other hand, Dennis or Jesse, maybe you've seen this before. Some places put a candle or candles by the ambo. And that's always struck me as not at all, according to, to Hoyle. But now you're not talking about like, uh, Lucifer's <laughs> candle bearers, you're not right? talking about gospel procession. Are you talking no, I'm not about talking like about gospel procession. Crap. I'm talking about just, you know, you got some candles by the altar and you got some candles by the ambo. Yeah. That sounds like uh, somebody's attempt yeah. to equalize the, the liturgy, the Eucharist and the liturgy of the word. So that makes me think, you know, my logic before was, yeah, I don't see any reason why you can't, you know, highlight other, you know, important things like the tabernacle, but why... It should seem, to my way of thinking, you know, so egregious. I don't, maybe that's an over overstatement. Um, why is it out of bounds by the ambo, but not on an old high altar or tabernacle? Hmm. There's a distinction in there somewhere that I'm not. Uh, it's probably clear a liturgical about. preference is what I'm getting. I'm getting a hint of that. Mm, well, you, you know, before be right. the council, <laughs> they often had these high altars with all kinds of statues and everything, and you'd see like forty hours candles up there, like they'd be set up like on a little mountain. There'd be like 12 candles on the little candelabra on each side. And it's kind of this devotional thing. And you'd have 24 candles lit. And then the six for the mass are kind of lost among the mm. sea of candles. Mm-hmm. It's bringing out the primacy of of each thing is not a bad idea, but you can see how it can become kind of rigid. You may have no other candle than the two, four, six, or seven. Um, and in a kind of an easy orthodoxy way, yeah, let's let the glory of the mass at the altar of sacrifice flow out to the rest of the church, just like the consecration candles. We had a big feast day here in the Abbey recently, and they had the candles lit, uh, the consecration candles out on the wall. And technically that would be more than six. Um, but that's, but that's, that's prescribed. called, that, yeah, you're right. It's, it is prescribed in the, yeah. in the book. So, so hmm. you know, just don't be stupid and do what seems right. That's ah, right. the don't be stupid liturgical principle. So <laughs> yes. uh, it can and save a lot of trouble actually. Yeah. <laughs> Do, do you have a class at the LI, Jesse, called Don't Be Stupid in the Liturgy? We will now. I think that's great. <laughs> that's your class, Chris. Basically. <laughs> Everything you teach is basically semicolon, don't be stupid. 
All right. Well, uh, at, uh, you know, I do want to read this one other. Sometimes I, I skip past the uh, uh, accolades that people give us. But since Chris loves doing this podcast, uh, Adam says he's very much enjoyed uh, our podcast, especially when we started walking through the general instruction of the Roman Missal. Yeah. And at the end, he says, please keep up the good work and, and spend another 18 seasons or whatever it takes to keep going through the whole missile at the rate you are. So uh, I'm sure Chris is real online with that. <laughs> so, so Adam, thank you so much for your question. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God and bless. God bless. And God bless. Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully come to an end. Our hosts are Chris, Get Out of My Dreams and Into My Carsons, Dennis, Big McNamara, and Jesse, Y-O-Y-O Weiler. Our producers are Michael, Don't Be So Coy, and Nathan, First Round Draft Pickman. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflecht. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Fran Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey, Shrivam, and Howe. And even though overstoles become understoles when they hear us say it, we are the, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys. Guys.